Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The government is set to win a confidence vote in the Justice Minister avoiding a possible snap Christmas election. There will be strong government support and clearly a number of independents have indicated their support as well. The state confirms it's no longer able to provide accommodation to all new asylum seekers arriving into Ireland. Also coming up on the programme, chaos returns to Gaza hospitals as Israel steps up its ground offensive against Hamas. And an inquiry into Molly and Tom Martin's release dates with the very latest on this breaking story. First tonight, there's confusion in the United States over the prison release date for Molly Martins Corbett and her father, Tom Martins, who were convicted of the manslaughter of Jason Corbett. Earlier, the Corbett family expressed outrage at their possible early release this week. But now it seems they will remain in jail. Well, just before we came on air, I spoke to Irish Times US correspondent Martin Wall about the latest surprise developments in this case. Yeah, it wasn't just a question of, of, of a, an announcement being on a website. There was a statement issued by the prison service in North Carolina um, early on this evening, about eight o'clock, half past eight uh, Irish time, which said and confirmed uh, the story which had been running for most of the day in Ireland, that the that Tom Thomas Martins was to be released tomorrow on Tuesday and Molly Martins was to be released on Wednesday and that both would be placed on a 12-month probationary uh, under the under the supervision of a, of a probationary service in, in essence for the for the for, for this for a subsequent year that was announced as i say in a statement by the prison service in north carolina around about eight o'clock half past eight this evening in the last a little while it has emerged that the that that may not be the case the prison service in north carolina are now saying that it is likely, sorry, that the release will not happen tomorrow, as had been anticipated, and that the the Martins may remain in prison until the middle of 2024. Now, that would be in line with what most people, most observers who sat through the recent sentencing hearing had anticipated, that they were, that when you calculated the the time that they had already spent in prison, when they had been sentenced initially in their first trial that was later quashed, the conviction was later quashed in appeal, but that would have left them between seven months and two and a half years in prison. So that would have meant that they would have been out at the earliest next summer. Now, there seemed to be some indication, but there was more than some indication, there was a statement confirming that they were to be released tomorrow. Now that doesn't appear to be happening, and we are awaiting a second statement a second formal statement from the prison service in North Carolina, which may come tonight or may come tomorrow, that may set out what the exact position is. But the position as of now would appear to be is that Molly Martins Corbett and Tom Martins are to remain in prison, potentially until the middle of 2024. 
That was Martin Wall speaking to me a little earlier before coming on air. Now to another story and new asylum seekers who cannot get accommodation here are to get a weekly payment of €75 Euro under a temporary plan going to government tomorrow. I'm joined first tonight by Fine Gael Senator Barry Ward, Independent TD Michael McNamara and Irish Daily Mail political correspondent Ashling Maloney. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Ashling, to come to you first on this uh, new development that's going to Cabinet tomorrow, an increase in the amount of money being provided, the weekly payment being provided to asylum seekers in this country, on foot, of course, of this announcement that there's a severe shortage of beds and a shortage of accommodation for new asylum seekers. Yes, indeed, Claire. So we're hearing tonight that Cabinet tomorrow will consider proposals around increasing the weekly welfare payment to asylum seekers who don't get state accommodation. So they're saying they're going to increase that to €75 Euro for this particular cohort. Currently, asylum seekers received I receive about 38.80 per adult and 29.80 per child and they also get medical cards but those are for those who are offered state accommodation which is in general the norm that when you come here and you seek international protection that you are given state accommodation because under European directives Ireland does have to uh, provide for the basic needs mm -hmm. of these asylum seekers that come here. We have to you know, put a roof over their head as a basic need, um, you know, and, and give them adequate protection like that. But now we're seeing the department today confirming that unfortunately now the pinch point has become so great in finding accommodation for asylum seekers and refugees that they can no longer find anything at this moment in time. And those who are arriving are being told that there is no state accommodation uh, for them. Now, we're being told that women and children will be prioritised. Um, so, you know, that leaves maybe single adults, um, single males. Um, they're potentially left sleeping rough because what's being provided, there is a tent and a sleeping bag. Um, they're being directed to homeless drop-in day services, day services now, not hostels or anything like that, day services, and where they can get a tent and a sleeping bag. And they can also get like a shower and a hot meal, Wi-Fi, you know, toiletries. But that, that is but currently essentially the situation. At night, tent and a sleeping bag means that's where you are spending the night we've yeah. already had. And we've least. heard 32, sorry Claire, 32 people today mm -hmm. who arrived have not been given state uh, accommodation. All right, okay. Barry Ward, to bring you in on this, drop-in services, uh, not hostel accommodation, but drop-in services providing tents and sleeping bags. Is this not an admission? Uh, and we got that in the government statement, statement um, from... Uh, the Department of Integration on this. Is this not an admission that the system for international protection ap applicants has completely failed? Well, no, I don't think it's an admission that it's completely failed. It's certainly under pressure, and that's something that's been acknowledged for a long time. But actually, when you consider the extent to which it has accommodated people coming here, and at the moment, I think there are over 35,000 people in the international protection system. That excludes 100,000 Ukrainians who've come to Ireland in the last two years. Um, actually, I think it's an extraordinary achievement by the government okay. to accommodate as many people as it has. Now, but, but it's far what from... What do you say I, yeah, about what's happening yeah, now? It's, it's far it from ideal. In fact, it's, it's very undesirable. And I hope and believe it'll be a temporary uh, situation. Uh, the department is constantly struggling to put in place more and more accommodation. I'm aware of, of accommodation units that are coming on stream uh, in, the, in the coming weeks, for example, and I hope that will relieve the pressure in, in other areas. It's a constant battle, though, and uh, I think what is also important to point out is that there is not a struggle between provision of accommodation for people seeking asylum 
and provision of accommodation for people on housing lists, for example. They're totally different streams. They're different types of accommodation. The kind of accommodation that temporary uh, protection or international protection applicants are going to would not be suitable to house people on the housing list. And I think sometimes people think, well, you know, there is not a house available to me as a, yes. as a person who's a citizen here because of that. And that's not the case okay, either. Okay, so it's a case that then the private accommodation um, that the government has been using, the hotels, other emergency accommodation, mm -hmm. is simply not there. Uh, yes, uh, but it's not, it's more than just hotels. I mean, I'm aware of hotels, obviously, that, that do accommodate them. But in my own area, for example, vacant office buildings are now being uh, repurposed mm -hmm. on a temporary basis to accommodate people. And if those buildings are empty and not going to be used for anything else, that's entirely appropriate. That's the kind of, uh, I suppose, pressure valve that will be applied. Is there a strategy here, though? Because what we are seeing, and it's not the first time that we have seen this. I mean, we had this situation that we had migrant tents and... Um, people in the centre of town lined up in tents um, in January of this year, yeah, earlier this year. It happened for several strategy. months. I mean, is there a strategy to deal oh, with international protection so, applicants? And I've engaged with Roderick Roman on this on a number of, of occasions in respect of different, of different elements of it. There is a strategy in place. There is a community engagement team within the department that is actually very effective at finding locations. I have recommended a number of people to them who want to provide accommodation. They have engaged with the public and they are constantly bringing more and more accommodation on stream. That's what's going to relieve the pressure. It, the, there is clearly a, a problem at this moment, but we hope that will be resolved soon. Um, a problem that, uh, according to, to Barry Ward, hopes can be resolved. That's certainly the hope of government as well. We had Micheál Martin um, today saying that he was very concerned about this, Michael McNamara. Mara, your view on it? Um, well, I suppose I'm not optimistic that it's going to be, I mean, solved in the longer term. I mean, maybe in the short term, there'll be a reprieve or maybe some, some extra accommodation will be provi provided or found somewhere, although I don't really see where. But, I mean, the issue is that there are more and more people looking to come to Ireland from third countries, but also from within the European Union, people who've been already granted asylum in, for example, Greece or Italy. Mm -hmm where um, reception conditions are, are, are not as um, uh, favourable as here, or, or less favourable than here, however you want to term it. And because of that, they're coming here um, and claiming asylum here, although they already have well, asylum. Well, there's other people. I mean, it, by definition, they're international protection applicants, so we don't fully know are they going to one no, no, before there, coming to another. Yeah, but there are people who have already obtained asylum in, in Greece. There may be some, but we don't, have, we don't have the figures on that, do we? Well, I don't have exact figures no. tonight, but there certainly are. There are also about 30% of the um, the Ukrainian people who have um, temporary protection here have already received temporary protection in another country and they're coming here because it's um, the conditions are more favourable oh, here. So while one might criticise the government for running out of accommodation, in a way they're victims of their own success in having found so much accommodation and providing such relatively favourable conditions compared to other European countries. So what do you say now, we do now? Um, well, we have a finite amount of resources available to us as a state. We have a finite amount of housing. We know that we've a housing problem for a long time. I think the government, it appears to me, must be nearing the end of where we can find accommodation. Part of the problem is that Ireland is more favourable than other countries and we need to see, we need to find some kind of a balance across Europe. But Part of the bigger problem is that Ireland's perceived to be a more favourable place to seek right, asylum so, among migrants. So your migrants. suggestion is? 
Uh, I suppose our, my suggestion is a more robust, uh, our processing times are far slower. So, I mean, if our processing times are slower than other countries, if, even if we have the same amount of people, but we're processing them more slowly, then they're going to be in accommodation for longer. Okay. So we certainly need to speed up our processing times. Now, they did speed up a little bit under Simon Harris while he was temporarily in the Department of Justice, perhaps not quite to the extent that he claimed, but they did speed up. But I'm hearing anecdotally from... Right. But from processing people, from, does... Processing by its very nature is a process, so it does take yeah. time. It does take time, I, but I, I it doesn't necessarily in. take... It's hard to see how the same process takes two or three times the length of time in Ireland as it does in some other European yeah. uh, member states, because it is the same process, because we have a procedures right. directive... Is that, is that true to say, I think, I think it, it's, it's a very... fair criticism in that it takes too long to process applications here, but that's why, and Michael has acknowledged this, that's why the government has invested huge resources in bulking up the number of people who are available to, to make those applications and to deal with those applications. But as in the European Parliament today, this is a problem that faces every European country throughout the continent. It is not an Irish problem, it is a continental and a, and a union problem. And in fact, one of the MEPs I was talking to today was saying that Europe's borders are now the most dangerous borders in the world. And people who get through them, we do need to protect them wherever we can. Now, Michael's quite right, there is a Dublin Convention. People should not be moving from one country to another after they've mm -hmm. been granted asylum. But that is, I don't think, a significant portion of the problem at all here. Um, so but, the Dublin Convention but, only applies to people who are within the asylum process. My understanding yeah. is that it's not as clear that it applies once you have been granted asylum. Either way, the, those people are a tiny proportion of the problem here. The problem is that there are people fleeing, and, and it's going to be a bigger problem in the future as we face people fleeing, for example, climate change and things like that. The climate refugees are going to be a massive problem for All us right. in the future. So let's talk about that. If it's going to be such a massive problem, what has happened to, say, the report about our refugee response that has recommended large-scale state provision, um, you know, processing centres with wraparound services for people who come into this country, that we are actually reliant on hotels, on converting office blocks, on trying to do things on the hoof when the problem is already there and there are people already in tents. Yep, but there are two aspects of the problem. We're under a particularly acute pressure at the moment because, as I said, there are 100,000 Ukrainians here. And I'm very proud of the response to welcoming those, those people I'm in. I'm just conscious of it because the, yeah. the Ukrainian response, and that has been there since the mm -hmm. war broke out in Ukraine, yes, we've also seen an, an increase is. in international protection applicants. And you've yes. also said, look, we are, we're looking at more. We're looking at we climate yeah. refugees. The hope is, so though, I'm asking that, what the government response yeah. is going to look like. Well, as I said, the government response has looked like accommodating nearly 150,000 people, which well, is what an it's looking like. Like now. Well, the hope is that, for example, if you take the Ukrainian element of it, that they will not be here long term. Many of them are returning to Ukraine. So that is another pressure valve that will release places available. Now, I think it is important that we provide services for people coming here and we don't leave them in the lurch. Again, though, as, as the Ukrainian war drags on, I mean, I, I think those who thought that it would be fast were either blindly optimistic or stupid or a combination of the two, it's not going to end quickly. Mm. And the longer people stay, they put down roots. That's what human beings do regardless of where they are. So a large, I think, number of the Ukrainian people who came here are here to stay. Then there are Michal Martin and the government want to see um, Ukraine um, exceed to the European Union as quickly as possible. Obviously, once people exceed right. to the European Union, um, they have the same right to be here as, as Irish citizens have. So I think this idea that Ukrainians will go home soon and that will alleviate the problem somewhat is, well, not realistic. Okay. Ashling, I mean, what, what is the government likely to do here? I say that's €75 Euro payment. It's not going to get someone 
uh, you know, able to stay in, in yeah. A, a, yeah, able to pay for a hotel room or or anywhere near any sort of accommodation for themselves. No. And I suppose it's the it's the attempt to bring it up to that basic need or to to safeguard around that or you know the, providing some sort of a basic need for these people when they come here. Um, and I suppose when we talked about it, this has already happened this year, and it didn't just happen for a week or two weeks. It happened for six months between January. To June, we had people sleeping, uh, 1,500 people at various times sleeping a rough, uh, sleeping in tents. And there was, you know, as we've seen in the last um, 12 days with what we saw in Dublin um, around the riots and uh, far-right protests, that also um, targeted uh, asylum seekers. We saw that around Mount Street, which is where the International Protection Office is. There was a, so was a, a lots of asylum seekers who were camping out there, um, you know, near the office for some sort mm -hmm. of protection, and they were targeted. There were tents burnt out in May. Which means so, they weren't protests; they were attacks. Well, yeah. look there. Look, I suppose, yeah, and um, the. And aren't we under threat of that? Perhaps yeah, again, Barry. Yeah, I think Barry? we are, but I, I, and it's something that the Guardian are acutely aware of, and absolutely that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That needs to be something that's considered. But it's still tents and sleeping bags for anyone no, well, arriving that in, isn't in the, the situation into, now, into Ireland. Um, the, there is a difference as well. There were certain people in tented accommodation, which is different to being given a tent. The, people, the tented accommodation is provided is relatively comfortable. It's dry. Right. It's I'm not warm, talking about that. Well. I know, I know, yeah. But, but then but, there are I was also, referring to that. I was yeah. talking to people yes. who were actually and the, the, the guards the are going to, they are aware of it and they'll have to keep it under review okay. because it, we have to protect those people as well. All right. I just want to move on to... Uh, to something else now, and that's the vote that's taking place tomorrow on confidence in the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, in the wake of criticism of both her and the Garda Commissioner um, following uh, the riots in, in Dublin of almost two weeks ago now. Uh, what way, Michael McNamara, will we, you be voting on this, with government or against? I'm afraid I, I, I don't have... It's a simple... It sums to me, I, mean, I don't have confidence in the, the Minister. The number of Gardaí has decreased during the lifetime of this doll. Nationally, the number of Gardaí have decreased in Clare. And of those Gardaí who are still in the force, obviously there are huge problems around morale, there's problems about retaining the existing Gardaí, and they're spending, from what I'm hearing from ordinary Gardaí, they're spending more and more time doing paperwork and behind computers and not on the beat. So 
Uh, I'm afraid you can say that's a problem of Garda management rather than the government, but ultimately it's either Garda management can't do their job properly or there's inadequate resources. Uh, either way, that's a problem for government and a problem the government have ignored for too long. Okay. In my do view. you expect other regional independents to follow suit? Uh, well, I'm not a, regional, a member of the regional independent group, but uh, I, I think some independents will undoubtedly vote for the government. Uh, many won't. That's the nature of independence. I mean, it's a vote by vote and case by case uh, basis. Barry, uh, on this one, you know, we're hearing that it's likely to be a positive um, outcome for government here, just looking at the figures, and notwithstanding what Michael McNamara and many members of the opposition are saying. But do you think a positive outcome for government will actually be a realistic indicator of the mood of the House? Or is it that politicians simply don't want an election before Christmas? Oh, no, I think it will be. Um, I, I think, actually, this motion is completely misplaced. I think there is an element of, but there is, it's, pol it's political. That's what it is. If um, the people who are sponsoring this motion were genuinely concerned, they could have put this motion down last week, but they didn't. It is about drawing out this story. Okay, and last to make week, it more this week, Friday, yeah. the week, you know, the I, week before. I genuinely think, what speaking to colleagues... What difference in that? Well, the difference is what I'm saying is it's motivated by politics, not by an actual genuine concern about the ability of the minister. And if you look do you at what do you think everyone does have confidence? I in do the actually. Minister? I do. If you look at what Helen McEntee has done, mm. she has put in place, and we're going back now well over a year. She started putting in place provision for more. You can't say there hasn't been an awful lot of criticism of the justice sorry, minister. There has indeed, the Garda always been criticism of every minister for justice. There has always been uh, criticism of every commissioner by the guards. Commissioners are not supposed to get on with the guards well, because they are their manager. A, there's and never been no to there's it. never been a no confidence motion passed by a Garda representative body in the No, there hasn't, that's right. And there's but never been, and there the, hasn't always been a decrease in Garda numbers as there has been the, under the watch so of hang this on a second. We have over 14,000 Guards. What's really important is and and what Michael is missing 80, here is and we had the civilianisation. But the civilianisation programme is really important. There are over 900 civilians gone into the Guards in the last year. Right. That's yeah. freeing up Garda to and be not, out on the beat doing the policing that they want to do. And notwithstanding that, Garda are spending more time behind computers. That's not true. That's what I'm hearing. That's what I'm hearing. Well, let's, let's, we can't base this on anecdotes. It's not true. Is it fairly home, home and dry for the government yeah, on this one? Will, or yeah, who's will, under pressure with it? There will be a comfortable... Uh, it will be comfortably passed by the government, but it's interesting you asked there whether it'll be a positive outcome for the government. I, I don't think that this can be described as a positive outcome for the government. It certainly isn't. And I think what you asked there about it being a timing issue for some people... It, it all comes into play when you're deciding something like this, whether to vote or support. And uh, as Michael alluded to, uh, some of the regional grouping of independents will um, support the government on this. You know, they obviously get something in return as well for their support to the government. They support the government in the uh, no confidence motion around the eviction ban. So there's a lot to be weighed up there. So whether you have, uh, I suppose, in response to what happened with the riots, uh, confidence in uh, Justice Minister Helen McEntee is one thing, but then there's a whole other suite of things to take into consideration. But there's also more on the justice issue plate than what happened in Dublin. And I suppose, Gardaí, on, on, on the streets, on the beat, we have an uh, increasing number of road deaths this year as well. So that's another thing that justice has seemed to be, um, you know, failing on in some ways. All right, we will have to leave that conversation there for now. My thanks to Barry and to Michael and to Ashling. Uh, coming up next, war resumes in Gaza. So what hopes for any sort of peace now? Do stay with us.
Welcome back. The Israeli army has expanded its ground offensive into all areas of Gaza. A temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas broke down on Friday. I'm joined now in studio by former diplomat Dan Mulhall, Action Aid Ireland CEO Carol Balfe, and on Skype tonight by Professor Scott Lucas from the UCD's Clinton Institute. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, Carol, to come to you first, uh, the UN has said before that there's no safe place in Gaza. We are now seeing that the bombing has resumed and that the ground operation by Israel has spread into all parts with warnings being sent out and leaflets to people to move from maybe one block to another where, where there's about to be um, bombing and military operations taking place. Can you describe the humanitarian situation now that the bombardment has resumed? Well, the humanitarian situation is an absolute disaster and catastrophe for the people of Gaza. The suffering is completely unbearable and it is just unimaginable that they have to go through this pain again. I mean, we're seeing the levels of death that are absolutely staggering. So almost 16,000 people have been killed, including 800 of those in the last few days. And about 70% of those are women and children. It is just simply unimaginable and an absolute failure of the international community that we have seen this level of death. And just tonight in Gaza, there's an, a blockout of communications. And this typically means there's going to be an even greater bombardment. Evacuation notices were given to people who had already evacuated from the north of Gaza under instruction by the IDF. And now, in, particularly in the city of Khan Yunus, which Israel is focusing its next operation on, the level of despair and absolute terror for people there. People are hungry, they're cold, winter is hitting, and mm -hmm. um, there are the growth of diseases. They've already been displaced so many times, facing just simply horrendous conditions. And they have this impossible choice if you're a parent in Gaza tonight. Do I leave and do I take this absolutely perilous journey where I could be killed? Do I stay and risk the injury? Do I go somewhere else that might be more overcrowded and unsanitary? It's just simply an impossible and unbearable choice for people in Gaza. You partner with a number of hospitals as part of ActionAid's work in the area. How are they coping now? Well, hospitals have been almost decimated across the Gaza Strip. So there's 26 of the 35 hospitals are still operational. And we're supporting a maternity hospital that is hanging on by its bare thread. So we're hearing absolutely horrific mm -hmm. conditions of people being treated in corridors. Fuel is still not getting into hospitals. People with absolutely life-threatening injuries also in the middle of surgery, having to leave and flee because of the increased bombing. So just a simply unbearable situation. Um, I would like to bring Scott Lucas here in here at this point. And Scott, despite the mounting international pressure and the pressure that there was there while this temporary ceasefire existed, the military operations by Israel have resumed without restraint, it would appear. Absolutely, Claire. I mean, in part... This is effectively the decision of the Israeli War Cabinet, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the Defense Minister Yov Gallant, the former head of the military, Benny Gantz, that they really are, they'll risk any international tie here. They'll risk ties with the UN if they have them. They'll risk ties with Europe. They'll risk ties even with the United States uh, to pursue, quote, destroying Hamas. That said, I think there are two revelations which give us an understanding of why the Israeli war cabinet has taken the decision. I think the first came through 
two Israeli outlets speaking to former and current Israeli officials uh, a few days ago, 972 and local call. And those officials said, look, we, we have removed the constraints on attacks where there are civilians, large numbers of civilians, and we're using artificial intelligence with almost rapid fire attacks. So the Israelis can hit faster and faster and faster, but with no deliberative process in terms of the safety of civilians. And the second, I think even more disturbing revelation, why the Israelis can take this gamble is that American officials have told the Wall Street Journal that far from threatening to punish the Israelis for renewing operations, the United States is enabling them. They have provided more than uh, 15,000 bombs. They have provided more than 50,000 artillery shells. 100 of those bombs are bunker buster bombs designed to collapse large underground facilities and, of course, the buildings above them. And I think most importantly, or at least most surprisingly, if you don't know what's happening, more than 10,000 of those 15,000 bombs that the U.S. provided are unguided bombs. They're not precise weapons. They don't just target Hamas. They just hit everything in the area. I have to just simply be honest with you, Claire, and say that the Israelis have effectively made clear that civilians, all civilians, are expendable in what is now an open-ended phase of the operation. All right. Um, I just want to bring Dan Mulhall in at this point. And Dan, speaking as you know, diplomat for many years, um, an ambassador of Ireland to the US, and we're speaking about, uh, and Scott is saying there, that what the US is doing is actually enabling this to happen in their approach and their current relationship or approach with Israel. Uh, what would you say to that? Well, the United States has a very strong and long-standing bond with Israel. But I, I, I would also tell you that within the United States, there's now a lot of internal discussion. There were reports last week of uh, people within the administration actually speaking out internally and saying, and even, um, you know, um, challenging what the administration was doing. And there's also, of course, a political undercurrent here because there's a, a vital election next year. Joe Biden is, is standing for re-election against Donald Trump. And part of his coalition is younger people, many of whom now I know from, I've spent the last three months at Harvard University in Boston, mm. uh, many younger people, very more and more sympathetic uh, to, uh, to the Palestinian cause, uh, progressives in America. So there's a lot of pressure within the American system, it seems to me, to try to bring Israel to the point where they can declare victory and then open up some kind of avenue so towards the peace process. So is that what they're process. waiting for, a point that Israel can say, OK, we've, you know, ousted enough Hamas leaders or, you know, the, 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 the toll is a, this amount. I mean, what is, like, what is the US well, waiting for here? Because it seems they're waiting for something politically that they, that they can make this call, while all the while we're hearing of this rising civilian death toll nearing 16,000 at this point. I don't have any you know, internal knowledge of what the US administration is doing at the moment. But I, I, I know that there's a lot of pressure on and I, I expect that there's been a pretty heavy dialogue going on between Washington and Tel Aviv with the United States trying to rein in the Israelis. Obviously, it's very disappointing. I had hoped that the ceasefire would have 
somehow being continued and that we would then be able to move on towards the next phase, which has to be some kind of peace prospect. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened. And I think Israel is in danger of losing the, um, losing the, you know, the argument with the global community that I think is going to be more and more appalled by what's now happening in Gaza. And I saw the, the uh, UN Secretary General today made a very strong statement uh, condemning what's being done in Gaza. So I do think that Israel, uh, in its own interest, ought to find a way of bringing this conflict to an end and looking forward to some kind of peace process. Um, You know, Carol, you know, we hear that. And yet, as you say, you know, what we've seen since the temporary ceasefire even ended was a growing number, 800 civilian um, casualties just in recent days. Uh, What do you make of the political engagement in this war and the efforts that we are hearing about behind the scenes? We saw the release of hostages. We saw the release of Palestinian prisoners. You know, is, do, you, do you accept or believe that there is political dialogue happening that could make a difference here? I mean, there's no doubt that political dialogue is happening. That's, you know, a given. But from the perspective of people in Gaza who know the world can see what's happening and when the reality is that one child is killed every 10 minutes in Gaza, they are looking at the US, they are looking at the EU and they are saying, why? Why are you watching us being killed? I mean, the level of suffering here is completely unprecedented. The scale and what is unprecedented is the support from the US the UK, the EU, and that the people in Gaza can see that and they know that that's happening. So the political discussion that is undoubtedly happening behind the scenes needs to be more urgent. There needs to be a ceasefire. The bombing and the killing just has to stop. Um, Scott, um, what would you make of that in, in terms of, you know, this being, it, it being, Biden being under pressure to, to do something about this because there is, after all, an election coming up? I mean, is that what's going to spark some sort of action here? And then what, what does that action look like? Are you looking at peace talks? Are you looking at returning to discussion around two-state solutions? What's it look like? I think the whole reality here, Claire, is that... Uh, the international community and the international community did try to curb the Israelis. Uh, you could talk about what the Irish Taoiseach did. You could talk about what European leaders did. You could talk about Asian leaders, talk about Canada, the U.S., even as it supplied aid, was telling the Israelis, don't go all out and kill these civilians. But the problem now is, is that given the Israelis have made that decision, uh, what leverage does the international community have? I think the only uh, the only possibility mm. of leverage to curb the Israelis at this point is to cut military assistance, okay. is to cut the supply of weapons, there especially from the U.S. There but short of that, the Israelis will press ahead. There we'll have to leave it for now. Thank you, Scott, to all our panellists tonight. That is it from us. Um, our programme is available as a podcast. You can find us on Instagram and on TikTok. But from all the late team here, from Dan, from Carol, uh, from me, good night. Take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.